For those of you who are with us, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel as we continue on in our series. We're going to be looking at chapter 4 this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now, basically, what we have seen so far is <clears throat> there's trouble in little, there's trouble in River City. There is a lot of problems that is going on, and you can see a lot of these problems tend to revolve around the leadership, the spiritual leadership. So Eli and his sons. And so there's an issue, and we talked about this last week, of spiritual blindness that is affecting them. But really, as we have made clear, that their spiritual blindness and their inability to see sin and to respond to the sin that is going on in their lives and in their community is having these ripple effects within it. And while it's the text focuses on Eli and his sons, certainly they were a microchasm of a larger problem that was taking place in the entire nation of Israel, one that we can see quite clearly if we look through the book of Judges, which, if you go back to the Hebrew text, was right preceding uh, the book of Samuel. Now, of course, as we've also said, um, this was written from source material that would have taken place during this time. However, what we know as Samuel was actually completed at a later date um, uh, from existent material, so we can be very confident that what we're seeing is actually what happened, but it was edited for the purpose of not just telling Israel's history, but actually to teach Israel as a, as a community who has now been uh, brought into exile by the people of Babylon. And so it's answering certain questions, not just of what happened to Israel at this time, but why Israel is dealing with being exiled. Has God turned their back, his back on his people? How could God do this to his covenantal people? And so it is answering all of these questions within there. And it is ultimately, like I said, not just calling them to understand their history, but calling the reader to place their faith in the living God, to trust in him and him alone, and to see how the ways that sin can corrupt are the way we think, the way we worship, the way we relate to God, and ultimately that will always spill over into the way we relate to other people. That's one of the key things that we see in this verse, in this chapter that we're going to be looking at today. We've been seeing sin. We've been seeing the fact that um, one of the things that we've seen uh, in the last several chapters is this play on the word for, for glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, right? Or kavod. I'm from Oklahoma, so we'll call it kavod. And so... And what we've seen is this constant play on that word because that word translated could mean glory, but it could also mean heavy. And so what we've seen is um, the sons of Eli were very, cor they corrupted the worship of God. So instead of, uh, in, when, when people would bring their sacrifices, they would go in and they would take the part of the sacrifice they wanted. They made it all about them. And if they didn't want, if they didn't get what they wanted, they would use violence to get it. And then ultimately, they were not only doing that, blaspheming God, which we saw the word blaspheming is actually another word you could also translate light. So whereas instead of making God glorious or heavy, making God that which was heavy, they were blaspheming, they were making God light. And so we see that play there. And then there's also the call against Eli because in ignoring his son's sins, and we've seen that within him has been this continual sense of spiritual blindness in the text. It was a physical malady that actually showed a deeper spiritual reality within him. We'll talk about that a little bit later. He made himself heavy, kabod, from the sins, from the meat of his sons. And God says, you have made yourself heavy. You haven't made me heavy. You haven't made me that which is glorious. So we've seen sin, and we've seen judgment upon sin has been predicted. And nobody's really responded to it. Unlike 
the nation of Nineveh, for example, in the book of Jonah, when confronted with judgment upon sin, repented. We see none of that within there. And so we're going to see the effects of sin. And we need to understand that sin always has an effect. Just as it affects our relationship with God, it always communicates. It's like a cancer that spreads into everything. And it always reaches its tentacles into every part of our lives. And most especially the parts in our lives that deal with relationships. No matter how isolated, no matter how secret we may think that sin is. Well, how does what I do on the internet in the middle of the night when everybody's asleep, how does that really affect my relationships? Nobody's there. But it does. It always has an effect upon the community, and that effect is devastation. It always brings about devastation. We see this time and time again. In fact, I was talking the other day with Josh Proctor, and I was talking to him about prayer and, and, and what he does. And of course, many of you know who, who know Josh Proctor. Uh, his main ministry is dealing with uh, sexual sins, and he's begun focusing on um, working mostly with people in the ministry who are struggling, especially with addiction to pornography and lust. And as I was talking to him, he said one of the things that he's always noticed in there is how much of the sin is, is an effect of so much of their upbringing, their environment, sins of their fathers moving itself down. Sin always has an effect on the broader community. That doesn't mean that the community itself is not responsible for its own sins. But we need to understand this is the, the, the ways, again, sin is like a cancer. It just spreads, especially when there's no one there calling it out when no one there is dealing with sin. No one calling sin what sin is. But oftentimes, as we begin to deal with the effects of sin, we become like the, 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 the attic. And how does the attic respond to the ways, to the repercussions of sin, the repercussions of their actions through manipulation, through denial, The truth is, as natural sinners, as to use Calvin's phrase, people who have, are, whose hearts are idle factories, we're all addicts to sin. And in responding to it, when we begin to lose control, we too, our first response is manipulation. It isn't repentance. It's trying to control the situation through lying sometimes, through our control, through our regimentedness, through legalism. It's manipulation. But that doesn't work, and this text makes it quite clear. So we're going to come back to the very first part of verse 1, chapter 4, in a little bit. We're going to look at chapter 1, verse 4b. It says this, Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped in Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, if we were to look, and if you would pull up the map that's up here, what we see is the Philistines are somewhat of an ancient enemy. We saw them a lot in the book of Judges. And so you can see them as you're looking at that. They're going to be a little bit more on the left, on the coastal side there. And so I've, I've, I've circled the place where they're at. So this, this, the circle is where the Philistine encampment is. The rectangle is where the um, Israelites were encamped. And where you see the, the far right circle, that is... Shiloh, that's where we've been dealing with um, so far. This is where the ark was kept. This is where Eli had made his spiritual headquarters. This is where there was kind of a a semi-permanent tabernacle that had been built within there. So, so far, everything that we've been dealing with has been taking place in Shiloh. And so what we see here in the book of Judges, uh, God often used the Philistines now, the Philistines were kind of, a, they, they were called a sea peoples. They were people who had come in, probably uh, colonized in from, uh, from islands off the Aegean Sea. 
And when they had come in, they become very um, aggressive in trying to take over the area within there. And throughout the book of Judges, they became people that God used um, to confront Israel's sinfulness. So as they would go further and further away from the Lord, God would raise up the Philistines as a consistent army, oftentimes, um, to, to oppress and to beat down the Israel, and then they would, the same pattern would occur. They would, they would turn to God in repentance. God would raise up a judge to defeat them. But the cycle continued on and on and on and on and on. And progressively through the book of Judges, you see their repentance and their ability to stay in that place of repentance become shorter and shorter and shorter. And so now we see this once again. And again, if we're reading this straight from the book of Judges, we're not really surprised. And so, but what does somewhat surprise at least Israel is the fact that what has happened is that they have won and they have beaten and they have killed about 4,000 men. That is a pretty significant number of people. And so they're wondering, what do we do with this? And so we find in verse 3, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Okay, so that's a pretty good question. What do they notice? First of all, we can understand, we're going to read later on, the elders typically don't have great judgment in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to see that a little bit later on in chapters 7 and 8. But they ask a good question because they're still recognizing why that the Lord is the one who defeated them. Okay, that's a pretty good place to start. That's good, but what would be the natural place to ask there? What do we need to do? Well, what is their response? Well, it says this. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord, of the Lord, here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What is implicit within there? Is it that God would save them? Not really. What we see is that it We want to bring it among us and it to save us from the power of our enemies. In other words, they're believing it to be somewhat of a talisman. If we we bring this ark in, surely our victory will be sure. Rather than looking inside, rather than wondering what's going on, hey, let's just do this religious act and surely that'll make all things well. It's certainly a lot easier than looking inside, wondering, is there sin among us? Is there something going on here? Is God trying to get our attention? Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophini and Phinehas, We're there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And so what do we see right off the bat? First off, the people, it's well known that these two priests, Hophini and Phinehas, are wicked people. But yet, they have such high regard for the Ark of the Covenant that they're fine with these guys being the guys bringing it out. Hey, let's let these very wicked men be our spiritual leaders to walk out into this battle with these pagan people. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was, it was a simple, it was about four feet. It was a wooden box that was um, covered with gold. Um, And in this box, first began, we see it it, it carried the... um, the remains of the, the first tablet in which the law was on. And then later, uh, manna, a jar of manna that God had provided in the wilderness was put in there. And then also Aaron's staff that had bloomed was put in there in a later time. Now, it was fundamentally different than the idols of the polytheists, the idols of the pagans. And so whereas the idols of the pagans would believe that an idol was actual representation uh, of God's, 
God, their gods were actually present in that idol. That was never to be the case with the ark. The ark was representative of God's presence among his people. It was extremely holy, yes, but it was in no way um, to be means as a way to say that God is confined within this space. It was a visible representation of God's presence amongst his people, or I should say specifically of his throne. So they bring this out, and certainly there was somewhat precedent for that. We see in, in the book of Numbers, chapter 10, Moses, uh, as they were wandering and they would go against armies, he would, they would have the ark uh, would lead them in that. And also in the book of Joshua, and that dramatic victory over Jericho, God had commanded that the ark would lead them in battle around, um, around the, the, the place of Jericho. But none of that was to look to say that there's special, you would say, um, unique power in which you could wield it almost like a, a magician would wield a magic staff, something that you could control. That's what an idol is. This was nothing that would be controlled, nothing that you could use to manipulate. And so we see the results. Verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. They were pumped up. They were excited. In many ways, this would be what most of your self-help, your leadership guru, your, motivator, uh, your motivators, uh, trying to tell you how to, how to excite people. They say, hey, this is a great thing. You've really, you've really motivated your people. You've got them excited. You've gotten them believing in themselves. When I was doing my own outline of this, this, this chapter, I, I titled this section, What Motivational Speeches Will Get You. They give a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise and the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They could hear it all the way uh, from where they were. And when they learned that the ark of the, God, of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. What's interesting is for them, and we're going to see this a little bit more in the next two chapters next week, in some ways the Philistines almost had more fear and reverence for God, but it was is within their polytheistic context, for they said, a God, not the God, a God, has come into the camp, and they said to us, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slave to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for the 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. That is huge. It's huge in today's terms. And that time, it was massive, massive defeat. And, they, and then verse 11 and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hephini and Phinehas, died. So we see really exactly what God had said would happen has happened. Verse 12. A man from Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh. This, is gonna, this section right here is going to be the last time we're going to hear about Shiloh. 1 Samuel doesn't describe it, but we learn from other places, and this is actually still backed by archaeology as well. Uh, apparently, the Philistine attack would go all the way to Shiloh, and the tabernacle itself would be destroyed. Not yet, not at this point, and so we don't see that, but we know from other places, Jeremiah, which I read last week, is a place in Psalm as well. With his clothes torn on dirt on his head. And so he's a refugee fleeing the battle. 
And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat. Now that word seat there, keep in mind, where's the first place we saw Eli in chapter 1? He was sitting on his seat. Now the Hebrew word for seat there could also be translated throne, both places. He was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city, he told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound, in other words, he was watching, but he still wasn't able to see. Eli heard the sound of the outcry. He said, what is the uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. And now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? And he brought the news and answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hephini and Phineas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. It just the news just kept getting progressively worse and worse and worse. Verse 18. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. And so the Israel comes, and what we see right off the bat is Eli's first concern really isn't for his kids. Maybe that's because he knew they were going to die. His concern is for the ark. And when he hears about what happens to the ark, he falls over and is dead. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what we see in Eli's end is this continual progression of his inability to see, his blindness. He was blind to the fact of understanding what was going on with Hannah. He judged her to be a wicked woman when in fact she was actually more righteous than him. He only heard, he didn't see about the sins of his son. He didn't recognize that the Lord was calling, immediately that the Lord was calling Samuel. And now he's the last to hear about what's going on and the loss of the ark. So what we see, the news is conveyed. And Samuel's judgment is this. He falls off his throne. Just as where he was when he was at the beginning, on the throne, a passive, blind spiritual leader, God has corrected it, and that throne has now been tipped over. He falls off his throne But don't miss the play that is taking place there. Why did he die? Because he was old and heavy. The Hebrew word kavod. You see the irony that's there. He was confronted by the Lord by the fact that he had not made God heavy, but made himself heavy. And the wages of these sin was now his judgment. It was the cause of his ultimate death and demise. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for the pains came upon her. So in other words, she was so traumatized. And what it makes clear clear here is what traumatized her the most wasn't the death of her husband, it was the loss of the ark of God. And it induces labor within her. And at about the time of her death, the women attending to her said, do not be afraid for you have borne a son. Now keep in mind in this ancient Near East culture, there's no more honorable thing that the woman can do. This is a time in which she, um, most women at this time would have been absolutely thrilled and overjoyed. I've given birth to a son. But that's not how she felt, not at all. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabob. 
saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of the father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And so there's a couple of things to note here. Number one, we see a huge contrast in the birth between Hannah giving birth to Samuel, a place of joy, versus here the offspring of Eli is surrounded by gloom, by death. And so she calls him Inkavab. Now, you may recognize just from the sound here, there's a play on the word kavod. In fact, that is the root within this. And what it, Inkabob literally means, and there's actually debate within it, it could mean either a statement, no glory, no kavod, or it could mean, where is the glory? Where is the kavod? And it says, where is that? Regardless what this is, it says, look, the ark is gone. The glory of the Lord has departed. And so we see all these plays on that word glory of heaviness, kavod, that has taken place within there. We also see the reality of the fact that sins, the sins of some were affecting multiple generations. They were affecting multiple generations. That's the reality of sin. What I want us to see first and foremost as we look at this passage and we step back, what are we to do with this? Because this is something that, while this may seem so foreign, I mean, you got these rival armies fighting. Most of us are not soldiers. We don't necessarily take a a, a doctrine of holy war from this. We also don't have idols. Most of us aren't trying to bring around a cross, so to speak as a way of a kind of a talisman for victory. Well, maybe some of you do, but in general, that's not something we do. We don't have an ark. We don't have a temple, so to speak. But the truth of the matter is, this is actually remarkably relevant because what is behind their hearts is something that we deal with so often. And that is what they're trying to do is they're trying to put God in a box. They were trying to put God in a box. They're trying, rather than dealing with their sin, rather than dealing with their need for God and the bigness of God, what they're trying to do is let's take God into simply a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot, a way to say, surely, that make ourselves big, our wants, our desires big, that God lights. Surely he's going to do whatever we want him to do. They were quite literally putting God in a box. That's what the people of Israel were doing. Rather than looking to say, to ask the same question, which Joshua and, and, and them did when they lost the battle of Ai, of I, what has happened? Why did we lose the battle? Let's stop and let's look and ask ourselves, do we need to turn to God in any way, shape, or form? No, 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 no. Let's take the quick and easy way. We put God in the box all the time. What are some of the ways we put God in the box? Well, the first way we try to put God in the box is we don't take our sin seriously. We don't take our sin seriously. How do we do that? Well, we do it all the time. One of the first things is rather than dealing with our own personal sin, we love to focus on the sin of others. Let's focus on how the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Hey, let's focus on those liberals. Let's complain about what's going on in the schools. Let's complain about what's going on in Washington, D.C. Let's complain about what's going on in, in Hollywood. Now, all these are things to lament. All these are things to call and to look at from a biblical perspective. But they can't become a way that we begin to to look at the sins of everyone else in the culture and not to do an analysis of what's going on in our own heart and minimize our own sin because it's just too easy to not watch our favorite news program and shout at all the people we don't like. That feels good. 
What doesn't feel good is us saying, God, I need to address this sin issue in my heart. I know it's creating conflict between me and my spouse, between me and my kids, between me and my, my brother and my sister, me and my church, most especially me and you. We don't want to deal with that question. Now, a couple of caveats I need to make very clear here. Not time, just because something bad has happened doesn't mean God is it's because of a direct result of our sin, right? So we don't want to go in that direction. We don't want to look at that and say, well, something bad happened. Clearly, I've, I've made some sort of mistake. I've been sinful in some different way. However, I would say tragedy, conflict, difficulty is always to become a crucible by which we can become more and more dependent upon God. They become ways in which we can ever more move closer to Him and to rely upon Him, to see Him as sufficient for all we do. And sometimes in that process, what God will do is reveal to us ways in which we are looking to other things to to be our answer to our problems, to be our solution, to be our comfort, to be our hope. But a lot of times, we don't want to go that route. Now, we also, the other caveat we want to do is we also want to make sure that in dealing with sin, we don't want to go into a place in which we are living in constant shame, where we're living in condemnation. We live in the fact, and I love the first song that we sang, Mercy is More. The reality that deals with our sin and how great it is, but mercy is more. But because we believe mercy is more, because we believe the grandeur of God's grace and the abundance and the richness of it, what that does, friends, is that frees us up to truly look at our sin and not have to hide away from it because we can know that we are forgiven and we are loved. So there's a false dichotomy between uh, that sometimes we think that uh, living in the freedom of Christ and dealing with our sins. We sometimes feel like if we're we're trying to deal with our sins, we're not going to live in the freedom, the grace of God. And certainly both of those are true realities that we get to gloriously bring together. And sometimes that's hard. It's hard to understand where that tension is. And that's where a lot of times why it's so important that we have community around us that can help navigate us to see, hey, we're, we're going too far into shame. You need to live in the grace of Jesus Christ. But also in the same way of recognizing, hey, some of these issues, some of these things that you're dealing with is because you're not, you're not confronting some sin in your life. Not to shame, not to condemn, but out of love to help us look to a gracious and merciful Savior. So the first way we do this is we make sin small. We don't deal with our sin. That's not just true of us as people. That's true of when we make sin small in some of the organizations we support and are part of. We don't deal with sins. We've seen this in so many different church denominations or religious good evangelical organizations that haven't dealt with some of the sins of the leaders and just ignored it and swept it under the rug because surely... God needs this person. And what have we done? We've turned that person into an ark, a talesman. We can't confront this, the fact that this leader's a bully. He's so gifted, God needs him. We can't confront the fact that this person is, is prideful and arrogant. God needs them. Look at all he's doing. We can't confront the fact that this we're sweeping up all these allegations of sexual abuse. That might make us look bad in front of a community. God needs this denomination to look good. So we're going to sweep this under the rug. 
All of that's putting God in a box. One of the other ways we put God in the box is kind of the flip side of that, but it's really the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin, and that's legalism. It's the false belief that I can manufacture my own holiness. Really, that's the same thing as minimizing sin because it's minimizing our sin to the fact that I can manage it and I can control it through the righteous acts that I do. I can manage my sin. I can put God in the box by simply the habits that I bring. Now, habits are important, very important. They're rhythms that help shape us. What we do shapes us. But when we begin to believe that we can simply deal with things by doing religious activities, we're putting God in a box. Oh, you know, things are bad. I should probably go to church. That'll make God happy. That'll take care of things. Oh, you know what? I'll start giving a little bit more. That should make God happy. I bet, and we saw this a lot, for a while, there was this, this whole giving program where if you give to God, you can expect to, to kind of receive an exact amount. And there's all kinds of these testimonies of people who gave and they got the exact same amount that they had given in their tax return. What is that making worship? God in the box. It's about you're doing something to receive something else from God that you actually want, which is money. You don't look to Christ as your righteousness. There is no humility. There's just the desire to control. The third way we put God in the box is we use God as a way of upward mobility. This is kind of a form of legalism that we do here. This is the self-help and self-actualization. What does that look like? If we just do religious activities... If we go to church, if we raise our family in ways that are, you know, Christian, then our kids will stay out of drugs. If we make sure our kids go to church every Sunday, our kids will stay out of drugs and they'll get good grades in school. My hair, my, if we, we go to church every week, our marriage won't, will be in less risk of divorce. What are we doing in that moment? We're saying God is the means to our ends, our ends. Now, are those ends good? Yeah, those are ends are good. I, I don't want my kids in drugs. I want them to do well in school. But it's saying here's the end, and God is just one of those paths. So, for example, at a previous ministry, we had a young man uh, who came to Christ. It was a really dramatic conversion, really cool. He, was, he came from a very liberal family. And his family viewed it as, okay, well, that's fine if he becomes a Christian because, you know, that'll probably help him get good grades in school. So they're like, oh, that's fine. We're not believers ourselves, but hey, you know what? He'll probably become a better person. God in the box. God in the box. Fourth, and there's lots of things that we could add to this, but we're going to end with number four, and that is God is our personal vending machine to get what we want. It says, what is behind this is our belief that life should essentially be without difficulty and it's God's job to make it that way. This can come in all kinds of forms. All kinds of forms. A key way that we often don't think about is we look for a certain emotional experience from God. And so we look, what we look from God is a certain emotional high and so God becomes nothing more than that. Just a way to, hey, you know what? I need a little pick-me-up this week. Why don't I put on some good worship music? Now, is isn't to say that that's not good. And certainly God does give us his peace. But it goes beyond emotionalism. It goes beyond viewing God as our own personal cosmic vending machine. Essentially, that's what... And in ways, we do all of these, all four of these, sometimes simultaneously. 
Really, you can make the argument that the people of Israel were using all of these in the single, one single swept. They weren't dealing with their sin. They were looking at God as their cosmic vending machine. They were looking at it as upward mobility. Hey, God's going to give us victory over, uh, over these people. It's going to make us look good in front of these pagan people, these neighbors that we don't really like. If we just do this ritual, God will be happy and be pleased with us. But God doesn't go in a box. God doesn't go in a box at all. What we find and what we have is the God who explodes our boxes. The God who explodes our boxes. He will not go into them. And that brings us back to the question or the statement that Ichabod's mom said. Has the glory left Israel? Had the glory left well, let's think about this for a moment. And so let's go actually back to chapter 3 where we left off in the final verse. And let's go also back to verse 1 of chapter 4. If you would bring that on the screen. It says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Shiloh, uh, excuse me, to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. See, before this all took place, what we see is the God of Israel was actually revealing himself. They viewed it that the glory of God had departed because these bad things have happened. But in fact, everything was according to God's sovereign plan. God had already revealed that he was going to do this to Eli's line. This, was, this wasn't God losing control of the situation, especially what we're going to see in chapters 5 and 6 of what happens to the Philistines as they try to think they can put God in a box. Just kind of forewarning, it's not pretty. And what you see here, though, is the word of the Lord now was coming to all of Israel. Keep in mind, before then, what we saw, prophecy was rare. Prophecy is rare. Now God is revealing himself. He is revealing himself actually in judgment as well. God's all over. His glory is all over the place here. He is dealing with the sinful leadership and turning, knocking it down to rise up a leader who will tell the people his word. He's dealing with those who are blaspheming, making light of his worship and leading the people astray. He's bringing them to a place that through his judgment will ultimately lead to salvation. God's glory was all over the place. God's glory was present. It just wouldn't fit into their box. Because they were trying to look inside the box, they couldn't see it. But it was all over the place in his sovereign hand, and even in his grace, and ultimately his mercy. And what we see, friends, is God was just moving one step that will ultimately lead to the step that we await for when Jesus returns and the whole world is filled with his glory as it was always meant to be. God's never going to fit into our boxes. So what does it mean to live in light of a God that can't be boxed in, a God that can't be caged? The first thing is what we do is we come unworthy but loved. We come unworthy but loved. From our first moments to our final breath, we come through grace. When we believe that we are loved, we come in here to worship. And one of my favorite ways, as you guys know, is to, to say, hey, you guys are welcome into this place of worship, not because of how good your week went, not because of how faithful you were, but because of who Christ is, because he was faithful because he fully loved God with his whole heart, uh, soul, strength, and mind. 
And so we come to a God recognizing our brokenness. There's nothing that we do to impress God, and that's okay. That's okay, because it's about his love, not ours. And so that frees us to come as we are, sinful. So what does that look like on a practical day-to-day basis? Well, one of the first things we do to understand we're unworthy but love is we submit each morning to his will and to his love. We acknowledge that as we wake up and as we begin our day, we might have all kinds of plans and things that we feel like has to go a certain way, but the truth is God is sovereign and in control, and we submit ourselves to him. But in submitting our day, our schedule to him, we also submit ourselves to the fact that no matter happens, what happens in this day, we are loved. We are justified not by what we'll do today or how things go according to our plan or to our schedule or to our to-do list, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Each day as we lay our head down, we acknowledge our brokenness, we acknowledge our sinfulness, but we also acknowledge the great provision he has for us in Jesus Christ. We sing the song we started off with, Mercy is More. We acknowledge our sin, but we acknowledge his mercy is greater as well. Second thing we do, we come needy but rich. We come needy but rich. God does not need us. He doesn't need Grace Covenant Church. He doesn't need Bo Sullivan. That means we don't have to self-protect ourselves. I don't have to present myself in a certain way, and I don't have to be weighed down by that burden. I need God. We, Grace Covenant Church, need God in His grace and in His mercy. We are not the hope of the world. God is. That's good news because we couldn't bear that weight. But the good news is, though we are needy and we can come to him completely needy, acknowledging the depth of how out of how much we are out of our ability to do and affect anything. We come to a God of sovereign goodness and power. We're needy. But God in his mercy does not hold back the richness of his grace or his goodness. And so we can trust that he is our good father. And so he tells his disciples in prayer. If you who are evil know how to get good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We can know that God in his love and his mercy isn't holding things back from us, his goodness back from us. But we can trust that in all things, he is ultimately bringing about good. We're needy, but in Christ we are rich. Third thing, we become weak, but secure. We become, we become weak, but secure. We embrace the fact that we are finite, and that's Okay. We were made finite. Adam and Eve were finite in the garden before they sinned. And that's okay. We are finite, but guess what? You are absolutely secure by the God who is sovereign. For all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are finite and we are called to do good works. We're called by his grace to do things for his his glory, but we are completely secured, justified by faith and nothing else. And so that enables us, friend, to humbly let go. We are weak. And yes, we may have all kinds of plans, and those plans may be good. But we can hold them with open hands and open arms and submit them to God. Because we know that though our plans may be many, we inevitably can't fulfill those plans and we, we are being crushed by the weight of our desires. We can let them go knowing we are weak, but ultimately we are secure. 
Our identity is secure in Christ. We are loved, and that love will never let us go. It may discipline us, but that discipline will be out of love. And then fourth and finally, we come to die and to rest. We come to die and to rest. We place our ambitions and our dreams under the altar of worship. And we trust in the sovereign God for tomorrow. And so we allow, just as I was talking about, all the things that weigh us down, the burdens, our desires, our hopes, our wants, though they may be good, we place them before Jesus Christ. We say, we want nothing but Christ. Just as the second song we sang, Jesus is better, right? And it marched through in all those different scenarios, help our hearts believe Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And in being better, what that teaches us is how to rest. And how to actually find hope, not in the things that we've done, not in the fact that our checklist has been May, not in the fact that today went exactly the way we wanted it to, but in the fact that we are loved and secured and made right by God, and we are able to be in perfect peace with Him. We come unworthy but loved. We come needy but rich. We come weak but secure. And we come to die but ultimately to rest. It's the great paradox of the Christian life. To boil it down, what it does is it makes sure, it makes us confront the reality that it's all about God. And that's gonna look very different in all of us. And we acknowledge that all of us are, are coming into this place. Again, none of this is meant to shame us, but it is made to make us stop and to say, all I need is Jesus. Jesus is what is need, what we need. Jesus is our hope. Our hope isn't that Jesus gives us what we want, but Jesus is our hope. He is the end, not the means to the end. And so I invite you today, and whatever you're going through, to look to him and to trust him and to see your life through that lens and that goal each and every day as we wake up, we say, Jesus, you are that which I need. And as we go to bed, we acknowledge the places where we look for satisfaction in other places, but ultimately we lay our head and rest in the knowledge that he is holding nothing back from us in his grace and his mercy. So Cassie, I would invite you to come up. And during this time, I just want to ask you, Where are we putting God in the box as a person, as a family? Where do we need to let go of this illusion that he will fit into the box? He's not in the box. There's no way, shape, or form. We need to let go of that illusion. And in that letting go, there is freedom and there is hope. 